0: Rupinder Kaur is an art therapist, psychotherapist, public speaker, community organizer, and the founder of Art as Therapy, with three locations near Toronto, Ontario. As a therapist, she works from a relational anti-oppressive framework with adults and children. She's passionate about systems change and using art to disrupt traditional thinking and imagine new possibilities for the world. Rupinder also facilitates trainings for other professionals on cultural humility. In our conversation, Rupinder speaks about therapy as being a space to light an internal revolution. We explore how she's adapted her practice for the digital demands of the COVID era, why empowerment through art is so crucial to social change, and then practical advice for anti-oppressive therapy. This is Art Therapy IRL, in real life a show about the new reality of art therapy. I'm your host, Amelia Hutchison. Since this is a show about art therapy, um, would you begin by just sharing a little bit about the creative foundation of your life? Uh, like what's the origin story of your creative practice?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that's such a great question. I love that question. It's so cool. Um, yeah, so I would say that I um I wouldn't say that I was trained as a fine artist by any by any means. And I think that works in my favor because sometimes my clients expect me to, um, to draw really well or to create art really well, um, whatever that means, right? Um, and so when they say, oh, could you draw an elephant for me? And I'm like, I, I don't think you want me to do that. I don't, I don't think that's going to be a good thing. Um, what I would say is that um, the creative foundation definitely um, would come from... I'm always interested in how people's early childhood um, experiences and their early childhood relationships and rituals um, impact them. And and so for me, I would say that there was a lot of creativity in my home. I was exposed to that. Um, and that could have been sort of um, you know, um, in the clothes that were made for me or uh, in just the decor that was happening. And, you know, had a caregiver who, you know, one day would just be like, I don't like the wallpaper. Let's just take it off and let's start painting, you know? And so, um, and then there was a fair bit of freedom that was given to me to be able to do the same thing. And so I think that creativity was always in kind of, I was always exposed to creativity. and I think really where kind of my interest in in art and um, and being creative came from. So I would say that I was more of a um, creative person than an artistic person. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I joke. My joke is that I um, became an art therapist only because I used to love buying art supplies. So my first job, I remember going into an art supply store and and just sort of been like, ah, oh, ah, you know, and um, just wanting to buy things. And so I think that's really the real reason why I became an art therapist. Yeah, so I can buy things. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I love that kind of space making, like framing that as a form of creativity. How do you see that um, showing up in the way you practice as an art therapist?
1: Yeah, so I think um, it's allowed me to be very intentional about the space that's created for um, for my clients. And so I give a great deal of um, thought to the aesthetics of the space, what it feels like, what it sounds like, what it looks like. Um, and and I think it's part of that sort of radical hospitality that is very, sort of part of my sort of Punjabi culture, like this idea that you're coming into my, if you're coming into my space, then it's your space, and um, and how can you feel truly welcomed? And so I think the sensory aspect of just coming into the space has been really important to me. So I think that sort of aesthetic sensibility sensibility that I was exposed to as a child has certainly come into of that private practice you know um, realm for sure.
0: Radical hospitality I just love that expression.
1: Yeah I think I'm borrowing it from the art art hive world but um, Mm -hmm. it certainly kind of brings True to kind of what it means to be Punjabi, and if you come into a Punjabi household, you know, um, they will feed you whether you want to be fed or not, you know, and they will make you feel welcome, um, and that's it, it's really an important integral part of uh, what it means to be, yeah, Punjabi, but, but certainly I think uh, resonates with me in terms of being an art therapist as well.
0: So, what, what is the feeling that you hope um, clients? As they enter your studio space, what's the first feeling that you you'd like them to have when they
1: come in to have an
0: art therapy session?
1: Yeah, I want them to feel um, safe, to feel comfortable, to feel welcome. I think welcome would probably be the the, the first the first word. Um, but I think um, allowing them to sort of just, you know, often. But you know, people aren't coming to see you because they're. Good day, always, right? They're coming to see you because there's something that they're really worried about, or if it's a parent that's bringing a child, um, if it's an adult, there's something that's on their mind, and it's you know, um, and so so you want to be able to provide um a sensory experience that sort of feels calming, that feels like it's okay, you can just take a breath, um, and often clients have said that, right? They've said, you know what? I can just relax when I'm here, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also about how they're greeted and how, um, you know, our, our, our front desk staff will remember what their favorite tea is and say, hey, would you like that same tea again? Or would you like to try something else? And I think just those little touches, I think just sort of say, we care about you and we're so glad that you're here and we're here to support you in the best way that we can. hmm
0: well, it really makes me miss my like, in-person studio practice. So going back to kind of the foundation of your practice, what has your trajectory been? How did you become an art therapist?
1: Mm-hmm. So I, uh, in England, I've always worked with sort of prior to becoming an art therapist, I always worked with teens and, and young people. Um, and I was working in a psychiatric hospital and, and there was um, an art therapist there. And this is my first introduction to art therapy. I didn't even know that it existed before that. And I didn't know exactly what was happening in the art therapy studio, except that when the clients would come out, they would just be in a much different frame of mind than they were when they went in. Um, Much, much calmer, happier. Um, Sometimes they would share the work that they had done in the group. And when they would go see the psychiatrist, and I'm not even joking, we would be standing outside bracing ourselves because we knew that there would be flying chairs and all kinds of things. It was a pretty dramatic place, and um, and so I think that piqued my interest. Like I was like, "Wow, you! There is a profession where I can combine." creativity and my love for psychology and my love for the human mind and what goes on and in the inner workings of both my own mind and the mind of others. And then I moved to Canada and started researching, well, where do I, you know, where can I do this art therapy? Um, and found myself at Toronto Art Therapy and yeah, and then here we are 16 years later. Excellent.
0: So what does your practice look like? Who do you work with and what might a typical session look like for you?
1: So um, when I started the practice, it was primarily working with children and teens. Um, and it was just myself. I sort of founded this about 10, uh, ooh, 11 years ago. Um, and then um, I also had the advantage of or the opportunity to work with older adults, which was completely different. That was That was not something that I had done before. And that was just such an incredibly rich experience. And then to sort of see kind of the lifespan of like working with, you know, like clients as young as three to working with clients that were like 101 was kind of fascinating. And then my, my sort of private practice team grew. And, and so, and as I sort of um, have grown, I've sort of shifted my practice in that I tend to now work more with um, I'm very passionate about working with parents. So my colleagues might be working with the younger clients and I work with the parents um, and then working with young adults as well who may be from um, South Asian, uh, from a South Asian background too. So there seems to be this need and I think there should be to sort of say, I would like to work with a therapist who may not fully understand my experience but may have some, some semblance of what it means to be living in a, to be a, a person of color. Hmm.
0: So, when you work with children specifically, what might a usual session look like?
1: Hmm. Yeah. So, the the approach that I use, I would say, we use a, a relational psychotherapy approach, um, very much using uh, applying a trauma formed an attachment lens um to our work as well as an anti-oppression anti-racist and cultural humility framework as well as we're we're working um and then yeah in terms of our sessions with with um, with kid clients it really is about what they want to do with that time and that space and really following their lead um really using that kind of playful curious empathetic approach and so i think yeah i think working with younger clients is amazing because they yeah, they, they sort of let you know what it is that they, that resonates for them or what they like and what they don't like. And um, I think really listening to the client and and same is true for any client, but certainly um, the younger ones, really allowing them to experience that sense of mastery and control and autonomy in the space, you know, can be really empowering for them. So.
0: So then I'm also curious about, how your practice has changed during COVID. Um, How have you had to adapt your practice both to meet physical distancing needs and then maybe the emerging kind of needs of your clients related to the pandemic?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, we had already sort of strategically had been thinking about um, at the practice of, uh, of doing more sessions online. I think what was the uncharted area was, you know, we'd done talk therapy Um, quite easily online but to now do art therapy with kid clients with our younger clients was was a little bit of unknown you know uncharted territory and so um so that's where we sort of really hustled and i think we had a bit of time then you know so not only were we were kind of providing the platform at the same time we were like you know engage in like trainings and information sessions and what have you to say okay how can we do this um and so and, and we were talking earlier about, you know, the ritual of setting up a session, of, of setting up um, supplies, of uh, providing a snack or having their favorite beverage ready for them, um, for the client. And now not really being able to do that in the same way. Um, and so how do you then adapt that to the online space? And I think that we we found ways to do that. And so um, so that might have been sort of asking clients ahead of time, you know, is there anything that you need to use? Your setup. Do you need a tissue box? Do you need to grab a, you know? So by just by asking, we're sort of providing that, extending that level of care, um, uh, but then also recognizing that some clients may not even have some of the supplies that are needed for an art therapy session. And so uh, being able to create kits and being able to mail things and drop things off, if um, if you know if that if they were local. So I think that it. You know, the initial hesitation was certainly there of, will this work? Can this work? And we found that, you know, even if we were sitting miles away from our clients, um, you can still, through the screen, um, provide a sense of presence for your client. and I think that what, was, what we found really useful was that we were, we were seeing our clients in their own environment. And, and while that can pose some ethical challenges sometimes, um, it's, it's been also really useful, too, because we get to see them in their home environment um, And then the client gets to decide what they want to share and what they want to bring. For adult clients, I think just the flexibility of being able to not have to drive um, to be able to just pick up the phone or, you know, uh, come onto the online platform has just been really, really useful, Um, especially parents who are at home um, looking after school age children and you know doing work as well and um, being able to sort of access services that way has been yeah has been really good. Mm-hmm.
0: I love that you frame kind of the online sessions as having more opportunity for autonomy and agency. I think one of the assumptions I made when the world suddenly changed and I had to go from seeing clients in person to online which is a way that I was not trained was that we would miss out on the ability to kind of regulate together and have that sense of presence.
1: But if the cornerstone of, of the therapeutic milieu is the relationship, then I think then that can still stay very much intact. And, you know, and there's really fun things that you can do. Like you can, you can play hide and seek on, on an online platform, right? Like you can hide characters and you can do all kinds and you can take your screen and move it around the room and you know and so you're absolutely right like it's not the same but it's it doesn't mean that it's not as, as effective and I think that we were really um what we struggled with was what we felt confident confident about was that we had an existing relationship with our clients and so that we would leverage on that in order to be in this new uncharted space with them but then we had new clients sign up, and during that time, and we were we were sort of very hesitant. we were like, I don't know, I, I'm not sure how we're going to do this, and that actually worked really well too. So, um, so we were pleasantly surprised with with how um, I guess like open children can be.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think because this kind of generation of kids that we're working with has always had FaceTime and always had the relationality of. Um, interactions through screen. There's not the same um, hesitation. I think for adults, sometimes there's this pause of, okay, well, the internet's not real. And the things I post or the relationships I have online aren't really as real as the ones I have in person. Yeah. Um, and I think we're relearning that as a culture.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mm. agree. Mm-hmm. So I want to
0: pivot now into your work around cultural humility. So can you start by saying a little bit about the difference between how you see cultural competency and cultural humility?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So cultural competency trainings um, that people, I I think they're incredibly robust. I think they're incredibly useful. Um, And they can really provide you with some tangible skills and tools to be able to work Um, with certain populations. That said, I think that they're limiting in that, um, you know, you can't do a cultural competency training and then say, okay, that's it. I know what I need to know. I'm good to go. I have the certificate. Um, I am now competent enough to work with, you know, particular population. Um, Cultural humility, the way I see cultural humility is that it's more of a guiding principle, um, That it is something that, it provides the framework within which you may have different components, um, like cultural competency trainings, or or other other things that you might be doing. But I think cultural humility definitely gives you that um, that framework, that guiding principle, that this idea that a critical self reflection is an ongoing. Uh, lifelong commitment um and that the work of uh, that there is some responsibility for not just for um you know in, uh, individual change but also um, systemic change and um, system change because if the systems don't change then essentially the the environment is not going to be conducive um, whatsoever to, to the kind of goals that we might have in terms of uh, disrupting our, our own narratives, but just, you know, helping clients to disrupt deeply held narratives about themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that it's not this kind of end goal. Like you can't just do your certification and check it off and say, okay, I'm competent and then carry on. It's like you said, a yeah. lifelong commitment to being wrong and learning how to do better and being wrong and learning how to do better and yeah. really committing to a practice of listening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't even know if it's, it's been wrong, but it, it's sort of, um, I like to think of it as like, how do you expand your knowledge? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more of an expansion. Like, how do I keep, how do I self-reflect and how do I expand? How do I self-reflect? How do I expand?
0: I feel like so often there's an attitude around culture and activism that's, like if i can't do it perfectly if i can't do it right then i'm just going to sit back and not do it at all instead of trying and doing it a little bit imperfectly out of fear that we'll get called out or or potentially harm somebody
1: mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. and and that's not to say that you don't have a responsibility to ensure that you're not causing harm um Mm -hmm. so i think that um and that doesn't mean that if you're going to work with a particular group of people or or any client for that matter that you're not doing your own research that you're not learning about um who they might who they might be Uh, but then you go into the space and you put that to one side and say that's the knowledge that i have but why don't you tell me you know what you would like to tell me
0: Right. The client's always going to be the expert on their own experience. Exactly.
1: Let's talk practically
0: for a minute about what holding an anti-oppressive art therapy practice looks like. So for me, one example that I can think of off the top of my head is being really cognizant of the kinds of collage materials that you have on hand. Mm -hmm. Um, Like ensuring that clients are able to recognize intersections of their identities in the images they see. So it's it's not enough to have fashion magazines with pictures of thin, white, able-bodied women. Are there any mm-hmm. other things that come to mind for you that art therapists can do to prepare their studio or their virtual studio uh, to make clients feel as safe and seen as possible?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i think almost applying that lens right from the beginning so the minute of first point of contact um just ensuring that uh, the, the kind of language that you're you're using um on the website the kind of images that are being used um and then once you once they're in your space again this idea of aesthetics but then also well what does your space look like right like have you thought about kind of accessibility have you thought about what kinds of materials might you have? What, what's on your walls? Um, what kind of materials, you know, do you have like more sort of traditional fine art, Western, you know, art materials? Or do you have, you know, found objects and, and objects from nature? Um, um, so I think that becomes important. Um, your, your forms, any intake forms that they have to sign. Again, what kind of language are you using? How are you asking about, um, you know, pronouns, gender—like, what are the what are the boxes that they get to tick? Um, you know, ensuring remembering that. For one example of that might also be like um, some clients are. Um, they, they don't live with mum and dad not sort of having i've seen forms where it says mom dad you know that's not going to be all encompassing in terms of what how different families um are structured and look and um so so immediately you want to make sure that you know you're not there isn't a microaggression already you know the, the client hasn't even walked into your door and and already they're sort of feeling like oh wait a second this doesn't feel right, <laughs> you know? Um, and then I think you're absolutely right. What kind of materials do you have in your space? Um, and making sure that those are reflective of, um, of different experiences. Um, but then more so in the relationship itself. I think that as, as a therapist, I think fundamentally it is really important to do your own work, to do your own self-reflection. Um, I think that is the cornerstone of kind of any therapeutic um space but that then allows you to sort of say okay am i checking in with my biases what's happening here what's happening for me can i be really genuine with my client in this space
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. so i want to move towards kind of broader a little bit out from therapy just to the role that art can play in social justice movements something i've heard you say before that i really loved was the expression moral imagination. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means and why art is important to civil rights movements?
1: Yeah, what I love about art is this idea that when I think about like little ones, like little kids who um, for the first time they, they're, they're given a piece of paper and a marker and they just, and they make a mark. Um, and suddenly what they've done is they've transformed that piece of paper and they've realized that, wait, I did that, right? Like I made a mark and now I can make another one. And I think that's so incredible, this idea of individual action and how you can make a change in the world. Um, So I think that's what art reminds us of. When we're working with clients, clients are often coming into the space because they feel stuck, because they feel helpless, because they feel a sense of despair, because they feel like there's no way out of what they're feeling. And so to be able to, in in the art therapy space, to be able to say, well, no, you know, we don't believe that that's true. We believe that the opposite is true, that you can transform this feeling, that you can feel differently, that you can make a change. And it is based on this idea, this sort of unshakable belief that we have in all of our clients, that they have what it takes to make a change, that they have what it takes to create the transform, the kind of transformation that they're looking for. So I think that as art therapists, I think our role is to just create an environment um, that allows that sort of igniting of an internal revolution of, of sorts. If we're taking that cultural humility lens, is that we're also trying to transform the environment as well and the systems, and we're trying to dismantle systems and we're trying to relook at systems and deconstruct them. Um, but if those things are happening together, then that internal revolution that was ignited can then then can then. sort of spark and it's this idea that it reminds us that we have the ability to make a change if we can make a change in the art therapy room then we can make a change outside of it as well
0: Mm -hmm. it's no small thing to to take a material and transform it into something else and the more we do that and the more we feel comfortable being agents of change taking that internal revolution as you said and then translating that to physical action and then translating that to a safe therapeutic relationship then we can bring Mm -hmm. that out into the world Oh.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So,
0: from that place of imagination, um, and as we kind of come towards a close here for a moment, I want you to imagine that you're sitting in the art therapy studio of your dreams. And you can take a second mm. and even close your eyes if you want. But mm. in this art therapy studio of your wildest dreams, what does it look like? Who works there? Who are the clients? Who's funding it? Um, how do they interface with their community? what would that, would that service be and how would it reach people?
1: Mm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. What a question. Um, I I mean, immediately, I think it's a space that is very much Connected to nature, you know, so that there is that kind of connection to land. Um, and especially given the ecological crisis that we're facing, I think, um, you know, there really needs to be this greater conscious, critical awareness of what we're doing to the earth, what we've done to the earth. And if we don't change our behavior, then, you know, um, it, it already has been catastrophic in so many different spaces across the globe. Um, And so I think having a space where you can be really grounded in nature, I think would be would be incredibly important. I think um, not having this sort of Western kind of sensibility. And I think something that we've tried incredibly hard at our private practice to disrupt is this idea of the the therapist being the, the expert um, being the fixer, uh, being somebody who can you know sort things out with the, with the, with the individual coming as if it's you know um, you know the problems with me, and yet we know that these problems are social justice issues we know that this is the racism that is rampant um, in both our country and in, in countries across the world and across the whole globe. Um, and yet we seem to put all of the onus on the individual and say, well, it's the individual's problem, but it's not. And so I think that uh, a, a art therapy space or a, a therapeutic space would would have to be deeply embedded in community. Like, it can't be separate from community. And I think that's where at least my kind of um that's where the whole cultural humility thing came about for me and in terms of providing trainings because for some people it doesn't make sense to them they sort of say well repent you're not therapist you work individually with clients or in groups and and then you're you're doing this training and and it really came from this idea that you know we could do some beautiful work in the therapeutic space with the individual and yet that individual then goes back to an environment that doesn't work That goes back to an environment that continues to oppress them, that continues to marginalize them, that continues to bring them down. And so I think that it has to be cohesive. It has to be more connected. It has to be the individual and community. And so so what would that look like? I mean, it would be... Um, But really having this sort of open community space. And what do we know about mental health and mental well-being? Well, you know, the the better the quality of our relationships, the better our mental health is. When you fully attune with someone in a therapeutic space, when you're with them and you've got this right brain to right brain connection, this isn't about the, the cognition. This isn't about the rationalization. This isn't about what's happening. This is about just the connection in that moment. I actually think that that is what love is. So whatever the therapeutic space is going to be, I think love needs to be at the at the center of it. And I'm not talking about, you know, there's lots of different kinds of love, but the the kind of love that I'm talking about is this idea that when we come together and we sit together and we say, you know, what, I'm human, you're human. And being human is complicated. And as humans have have created all kinds of complications in the world but we've got this power, this innate sovereign power that we can come together and we can make a difference. And I think that that, to me, is what, you know, like, just, ah, you know, like, raises, like, you know, kind of just gives me goosebumps. It's like, yes, like a tingle down my spine. Like, that's the kind of thing we need to be doing. Um, Mm
0: -hmm. It's really a place that we can sit in our realness with one another. And I really appreciate mm -hmm. that you... You name the kind of boundaries that we're sometimes awkwardly working with about how not to get too close and to hold the professional boundaries.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But at the end of the day, healing happens in relationship. Healing happens when we feel welcomed in space. Healing happens when we can kind of drop our guard and feel mm-hmm. comfortable to express in this way. Um, I just, I have goosebumps all at my arms from kind of hearing that description of a place that is based in love. I just, I love that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and with the increasing polarization in the world, the increasing, especially in our political, um, you know, spheres, and even COVID. So I think given all of those pieces that we're sort of struggling with right now, I think there's ever more of a need to, to come together um, and to really sit with one another and say, you know, how do we, how do we disrupt <laughs> what is happening in this world that is, that is just soul crushing, right?
0: Mm. Yeah. Given that the reality of 2020 can be, as you say, soul crushing, um, my final question is: What is giving you hope right now?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember doing some intentional practice with my team, um, and it was an image of sort of I I created a little boat, and then there was just an image of kind of like this uncharted territory, like you know, just collage materials, like none of it made any sense, um, and then. Um, but there was this idea that it's these, you know, these connections that we have um, in community, in our families, with ourselves. even that's, what's going to help us through all of this. Like that's going to be the, the cornerstone. That's what gives me hope. I think that, you know, that even when things made no sense, even when um, I'm sitting six feet away from my in-person client with a mask on um, the fact that you know, we're there together in relationship, the fact that I can still communicate, um, the fact that I can still attune myself and still connect. I think that to me, that's what gives me hope. And ultimately this idea of love and and using that for transformation.
0: Rupinder, Mm -hmm. thank you so much. It's been such a wonderful conversation. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you providing the space.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Where can listeners find you online if they're curious about your practice?
1: Mm -hmm. yes so you can find um our website which is um art as therapy so that's all one word artastherapy.ca. um and then we have uh, we're on instagram and facebook and yeah you can also find me on instagram at rabindagore uh the number five so yeah excellent thank you so much thank you
0: Therapy IRL is a capstone project in support of graduation requirements for the Kootenay Art Therapy Institute. You can find more links to Rapinder's work on social media in the program notes. Special and heartfelt thanks to Monica Carpendale, Millie Cumming, Nicole Libihan, and Lisa Heisler. Studio space and technical support have been generously provided by the Knott family. Theme music was mixed by Mina Hebert and project supervision by Nicole Libihan. This project is written and recorded on traditional unceded territory. My deepest gratitude to all ancestors and keepers of this land.